0: Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, it is a wonderful thing to be with you this morning. I am overjoyed. What a privilege it is to be able to week by week commend Christ to his people and to those who the Father is drawing to him. And I am very excited about this new series that we are starting today. I hope to complete this series before I have to take a little break. For those of you who don't know, uh, we are having a baby and I plan to take a few weeks when that new baby is here. And so between now and then, we are going to be looking at the book of Philippians, the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the saints at the church in Philippi. And we're going to be looking at it in one major vein, which is Paul, in his writings in this letter, demonstrates a transformed heart for the sake of God's people. What my desire is to show through this entire series, there are many things we could focus on, many things we could examine, but I want to, to hopefully examine the words that Paul uses to express his deep affection for God's people. And by looking at these words concretely and closely, carefully, we will see something quite amazing, which is the transformation of a murderer into the greatest self-sacrificial example save for Christ alone. And so this is our focus in this series. It is to see how God uses Paul to produce a wonderful explosion or a, or a reviving of love in the philippian church and and because of its inclusion in the scriptures it also now is for us as well that god has transformed a sinner into a saint and that by his example we would be encouraged to imitate it i believe that is paul's one of paul's aims as he's writing to address the philippian church so first i want to look at the transformed heart i want to i want to very briefly again reiterate what I've just said at the introduction of this series to see what Paul is doing in his words. He is expressing the heart of a spiritual father towards children whom he loves. Moving from there, I want to look at his greeting, his thanksgiving, and his petitions that he's making for the Philippian church, and how he is letting his heart be known even in the midst of describing for them his actions, which they usually never see or hear about. He makes known his heart to them by retelling what he does for them. There's a phrase in American culture that actions speak louder than words, But let it be known right from the onset in this letter, the way that Paul lets his actions be known to the Philippians is through his words. And so it's important for us to take this time to examine Paul's words as he expresses his great love for the Philippian saints. I want to look at this phrase that he uses, which is the affection of Christ Jesus, and explore what that means, what he means by it, Not only the affection that Christ Jesus has produced in him, but rather the affection that Christ Jesus has for the saints that Paul is simply trying to to tap into and to, to imitate. And then finally, I want to look at this prayer for spiritual growth that he closes the introduction with in verse 10 and 11, verse 9, 10, and 11. Paul's letter to the Philippian church, as I said earlier, it reveals the activity the things that fill Paul's heart for them. And this letter is not given as an occasional letter. The word or the phrase an occasional letter is a phrase that's used in, in biblical hermeneutics or biblical interpretation to describe the sorts of letters that had an extremely concrete purpose. For example, in Galatians, Paul, as we saw last year when we were going through that series, Paul wrote that letter to combat a specific heresy, which is the major aim and focus of that letter. Here, this letter is not so much as an occasional letter as it, it is more just of a general letter. There are some particular circumstances that are prompting this letter, but it's not kind of, not in such a way as it changes the focus of the content of what he's saying. So this letter is not really an occasional letter, but rather it is a pastoral letter. He is bearing his heart to the Philippian Christians. This demonstrates through all of his words, describing his actions, the fruit of a transformed heart by Jesus Christ. And it's important as we consider what Paul is saying, we, we remember the context of who Paul was. Before Christ laid hold of him, he was, as he says in this very epistle, a persecutor of the church. Paul was there holding the coats. He was the coat man at the persecution of Stephen. And in, in Acts 8 and 9, we see that when Paul was going to Damascus, he was not going there to get saved He was going there because he wanted to arrest Christians, throw them in jail, bring them before blasphemy tribunals where they would kill them. Jesus warned his disciples, there's coming a time where men will persecute you and they will think they are doing the will of God. Jesus Christ described the fruit of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees as religious zeal without any form of knowledge that is actually not love but murder. They believed that they were being zealous for the truth and actually they were destroying the people that God has been calling to himself, his very own people in the church but now in this letter, Paul expresses the love for Christ's people, which is not some manifestation of it turning over a new leaf in his life. It's important to remember what takes place in Acts 8 and 9. I, I am a deep appreciator of a new phenomenon in the internet culture called memes. And memes have a way, because they are jokes, they have a way of finding the, the chink in your armor and putting the sword in the right place. And there's this wonderful meme that kind of takes aim at a false understanding of how we come to Christ. And it's Paul falling off his donkey. It's one of these, you know, Albrecht Jurer's woodcuts that, that you know, where he's, he's taken a knife and for hours has detailed this depiction of this scene. And Paul is falling backwards off a horse and the meme that has been overlaid on this wonderful work of art, he says, there I was going to Damascus when I repented. and. As in, he's going to a revival and, you know, the, the point is that God lays hold of Paul when he is not only not seeking Christ, but when he is desiring to persecute Christ and Christ's people. And so, the, when we have that context for the background of who Paul is and what God has therefore done in his life, these words that he uses are miraculous words, because they show the transformation of the love of Christ through Paul for the sake of God's people. In this letter, he himself has been touched by the affection of Christ Jesus, and now he himself is turning toward the Philippians and also extending that very same love. As a wise spiritual father, Paul lets his affection be known to his children, and by his children I mean those who he considers to be his spiritual descendants. In First Timothy, he calls Timothy, my true child in the faith. And so Paul is not reserving his affections. He's not failing to express what is in his heart. This is so common for us as those who have lived in American culture, which is a derivative of English culture, which is extremely reserved. If you have ever been in a in a stuffy old English manor house or seen even in in an American colonial, the whole house is set up to present dignification. And there there are rooms that you're really not supposed to go in. And there are places or things that cannot be talked about in the life of the family. Now, this is not a good part of our heritage in the West, but it is a major aspect of who we are as Christians in America. We must understand that this is not the biblical model of spiritual fathering. Paul is, is making his heart known. He is not just cherishing them, as we'll see, he holds them in his heart, but he is then opening his heart to them. And so Paul is not simply just modeling who Christ Jesus is. He's modeling what a life is that's transformed by the love of the Father. By his words, through the retelling of his actions, Paul makes his tenderness toward the Philippians known. Remember when I said actions speak louder than words, it's not entirely true. There are some things that can never be reached with actions alone. You can see this working out in some marriages where they're, they're not really coming together. And over the course of decades and decades, one of the other people in the marriage is saying, well, I always do these things for you, right? And the other spouse will then say, but you never tell me. And so God made both. God made both aspects of love to exist in harmony. Paul does not refrain from using words to express the retelling of his actions. As we're going to see, he's going to describe what he has been doing for the Philippians and what he desires to do for them in the future, and he uses his words to make it known. So, Throughout these chapters, Paul shares his heart in both his trials and persecutions that the Philippian saints might have an example to follow. In Philippians 3, verse 8, he says, "...Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord." Do you you understand what Paul is doing? He's he's explaining his setting aside of his privileges for the sake of receiving Christ— And he makes a mirror between what he has had to set aside and the persecution that the Philippians have encountered. And then later, verse 17, he then says to his brothers, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. In his apostolic team, Paul, Timothy, and the rest of those who were his fellow workers. He is giving his hearers an example that is transparent. One of the modern virtues of our day is so-called transparency. And, And make no mistake, that is a Christian virtue that is being hijacked by secular humanism. Transparency here for Paul is he wants them to know the sorts of things he's afflicted with. This is why it's so important to have a church in which you know the leadership of the church. Because there often can become this this tendency both in us as hearers and also from time to time as leaders of to have this kind of distance between the spiritual people and the people in the congregation. We do this especially when we project our hopes and wishes onto figureheads talking heads on YouTube videos we we think that they are invincible because we see the power of God operating through their preaching or teaching and yet what does what happens is Paul is willing to explain to his hearers that he is hurting in this area that he is suffering in this area so that they would not be deceived they will suffer Like Paul is suffering, and he does it so that they would have a model to imitate. He wants them to know his anguish for them, his yearning for them, his suffering on their behalf. So, Christian disciples, in light of what Paul is writing, they must understand that their sanctification and their growth and their spiritual maturity is not an isolated endeavor. Paul is describing the work that he has for the saints, his own progress in sanctification, and also theirs as a communion of relationships, an experience, a sharing of, a giving and a taking of griefs and loves, affections and joys, sorrows, temptations, and perseverance. That is what Paul is doing in this letter. He is making his heart known so that they might have an example. The Christian walk, as we'll see throughout the entire letter, is not a private fight for holiness that is against sin. Sometimes we take the Christian walk in sanctification and we so individualize our fight that we make Christianity all about defeating sin. And yet we do not understand that it is sin which keeps us from love, not only love of God, but love of neighbor. And these are not divorced, although they are are often divorced in our practice of the Christian walk. We so focus on defeating temptation that we don't understand what we ought to be more concerned about is blooming in love for our neighbors. To allow this metaphor of ordinary time to just come forth a little bit, blossoming Growth, uh, you know, putting out new shoots, putting out new leaves, catching light, drawing up water that all happens in the community of God's redeemed people. Paul says to the Corinthians, "You are God's garden." And it's very important if you've never been in a good garden. I had the opportunity to go to Weggers and Gardens a few days ago, and it was fantastic. One of the things that was readily apparent was there was not a solitary flower on display but rather plants were put next to each other so that one plant, as it's tall and broad, would be highlighted by small, tiny plants at its base and that various colors would be expressed by different types of flowers and kinds. This is what God is doing in his people and everything that Paul says to this church has to be understood in the context of a plurality of people. So we're going to look at today, when we get to verse 6, we're going to look at what Paul says, a word of confidence that applies to a people, which we often hijack out as an individualistic promise. And so this is God's desire that through Paul, the Philippian church would be greatly aided as members of the body of Christ, we today must act in our brother's interest and in our brother's love. This is what loving our neighbor is for. Philippians 2 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. As disciples of Christ, we ought to demonstrate the same manner of love and affection for our fellow brothers as we imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. So that is really my heart's desire that through this book, through this epistle, as we work through it together, that we would be able to see the transformation of Paul's heart and character. And that by seeing that transformation, we would have two things happen to us. We would be delivered from hopelessness that we are never able to change. Paul, among all people, if he was confronted with the nature of his sin, but did not also see the radical aspect of God's grace in not only forgiving him, but transforming him into someone who loves instead of murders, he would have despaired. In fact, I believe that the reason God saved Paul was that he would have in our scriptural record, in our history of the life of the church, a concrete definition that God is able to save the worst possible type of person, the worst kinds of sins can be forgiven at the cross of Christ. So that is to, to see two things, that we would be delivered from hopelessness that we would not be able to change through God's grace. And then second, that we would have a grand vision for the sort of maturity and Christ-like love that we might be given should God give us the grace to do so. Because it is God who works our sanctification in us. So I want to look at this Thanksgiving and I want to examine what Paul is saying in these words and I want to look very carefully at individual phrases and try to draw out all of the meat and the marrow that is in them. I think there are things that Paul says, the way that he says them, the words that he uses that reveals he deeply loves these people. He says in verse 1 and 2, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's tenderness in this letter is known from the very first sentence. He does not say that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus, but rather he says a servant. Jesus, when warning the disciples, he said, You know that the Gentiles lord it over them. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And they demand to be called master or benefactor or teacher or father. But it should not be so among you. The greatest will be a servant. And so Paul is demonstrating from the very first phrases of this letter his heart and intention. He wants to be known as someone who is serving Christ by serving the Philippian people. His blessing expresses his gracious desire and the common filial bond or familial bond that exists between himself, his team, and the saints. And when, when Peter is writing his epistle in 2 Peter 1, verse 1, he uses a very similar idea. He writes them, addressing them to those who have obtained a faith that is in equal standing with ours. Do you see how this demolishes every other religion, every other faith claim that establishes itself in the world? The religions of man honor deeply those who are set over them in the national leadership or in the worldwide leadership. You can look at every single religion on the earth today, save for Christianity, and it manifestly honors to an unhealthy degree. It exalts those who are the benefactors, the masters, the leaders. And the apostles, as they open their letter, say things like, to those who have obtained a faith with like standing of ours. That is Christian leadership. It is bringing up those who are hearers, those who are growing, those who are young, a phrase often, the neophytes, the ones who are just beginning to learn, brings them up to an understanding that it is grace and grace alone by which we're saved. He says in this opening, he does not say the Father, but our Father, identifying and unifying himself to them. Knowing the encouragement which comes through the announcement of prayer or the telling of prayer, Paul tells them of the heavenly aid which is about to come to them. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being transformed by Christ, Paul's life is shaped by brotherly affection for the churches, such that he never forgets them in prayer. Paul is not embellishing in this verse, always in every prayer of mine for you. And interestingly enough, he doesn't even use this phrase, I'm praying for you, brothers, in such a way as to communicate some sort of condemning aspect or shaming aspect in the telling of it. The remembrance of Philippi to Paul is not odious. I love that word odious because it just captures so so much of what would naturally be a sinful reaction to churches who have spiritual need, who have the need for growth, the need for repentance, the need for transformation. Paul does not have some sort of idea that these Philippian Christians are a stench to him. He makes his prayer with joy. There's a very big difference between saying, I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember to pray for you and you really need some prayer. <laughs> he's not saying that. He's saying, I make my prayer with joy and he tells them what he's praying for. As a wise spiritual father, he reveals why he is so joyful, because they share his heart, that is to say, the gospel. In verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. You know, the way that you really know someone is not just knowing facts about them. I know many of you in a very good way. I know some of you with less detail. But those who I really know, I can say, I not only know what you struggle with, but I also know what makes you tick. And that really is what Paul is saying. He's saying to the Philippians, I know that I love you because you have shared in what the most important work to me, you've shared in the defense of the gospel, in the participation in the gospel. You see, the Philippians do not love Paul just for what they can do. What Paul can do for the Philippian church. They have begun to love and express that love back to Paul, as we'll see as we work through this letter, that they've begun to partner with Paul in the thing that makes his heart move. So, he encourages them here, expressing his confidence and hope for their continued sanctification based upon the faithfulness of God, not the faithfulness of the Philippian church. Because the Philippians exhibit the fruit of God's work within them, that is, because they're beginning to partner with Paul for the gospel, the fruit of their righteousness, he is confident that they will continue. He says, I've tasted good fruit here. You've been partnering with me for the gospel. Therefore, I know that God will continue to work. And so the assumption behind that phrase will continue is that God has been working in the Philippians. He's been working in the Philippian church and therefore they've borne the fruit of faith and holiness. And that fruit has begun to cause a spillover effect that the gospel is going forward. Philippians 1 verse 6, here is a verse that we often twist out of context. Verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Look very carefully at the pronouns In the second half of this sentence, verse 7, It is right for me to feel this way about you, all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Now, What do I mean by we often twist this verse out of its context? Paul's confidence of God's fullness, that is God's continuing to work, here in verse 6, I am confident or I am sure of this, I have faith for this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That verse does have individual application. It does mean, Paul is saying, I'm confident that God's going to keep working among you. And God does not work in churches apart from working in individuals together. However, as we see through this letter, it does not have individual realization. It has individual application. It does not have individual realization. Why do I say that? Because of what he says in verse 7. He says, the reason I have confidence that God is a work among you is because the evidence is taking place in the corporate you, in the you all. Unfortunately, we are not Southern enough to be using y'all as a pronoun, but it is what Paul is saying. The corporate you all is what he has in mind here. He wants to encourage them. God is working in you. He will continue to work in you because I see him working among you all. That's what Paul is saying here. What I'm trying to get at is that although this promise holds out individual application, it, it means something for me personally, my sanctification, God continuing to work in me, does not happen outside of the context of being a part of a community of fellow saints. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. He addresses the saints in the church, not as rogue individuals, but as those experiencing a communion in Christ together. And it becomes self-evident that that's his aim because throughout the entire epistle, he uses phrases like, my fellow brothers. Later he'll say, my fellow workmen. These are people who are a team of believers who work together. His affection for them is a holding in his heart of who they are. In verse 7, he says, because I hold you in my heart. I want you to just imagine, Just you can, if you want to close your eyes, you can. You just imagine a little red heart, an iconic heart, and there's a door. And the Philippian church is in Paul's heart. He's, he's holding them there. This is going, hearkening back to what we preached on a few weeks ago that Jesus said, if my words abide in you, if they live in you, if they, have a find, if they find a place in you. And so what Paul is saying is these believers are not a memory that causes him grief in the middle of the night. They're not, they're not such a terrible remembrance that Paul says, I'm constantly plagued by you. I'm constantly thinking about your issues. He says, I hold you. In my heart. This is the sort of spiritual fathering that is necessary for those in the church. This vision of Christian brotherly love was Jesus' desire, even as he went to the cross. As as our high priest made his petition to the Father, he said, Father, I desire that they all might be one, even as you and I are one. He also described that oneness between himself and the Father, that the Father is in him and that he is in the Father. What a wonderful vision for Christian love, that there would be a union and a communion, a a fellowship, an experience of love and life together, such that Paul would be able to say, that I hold you in my heart. Again, here at this point, he elevates his hearers' understanding of the gospel, removing any perceived boundary between he and they. We saw this earlier at the very first verse, and he continues to do it again. His apostleship was granted to him, not earned. It was a gracious gift. When Paul was taken hold of in Acts 9, we mentioned it before, it said in Acts 9-1 that Paul was still breathing out murderous threats. And we know that by the teaching of Jesus Christ, that words reveal what is in the heart, do they not? And so Paul had a heart that was bent on destroying these Christians. And now he is saying that he has a grace, a gracious partaking that is equal with the Philippians. When, when God called Paul, Paul, Paul later in Acts retold the story of his commissioning. And before he was progressing in sanctification, God revealed to Paul what Paul was going to do. He says, I have chosen you to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes. And he, he announced that to Paul at the very beginning of his calling as a Christian. So what, what this means is sanctification is grace, justification is grace, forgiveness with Christ is all grace, and it is not just grace by which we are saved, it's grace by which we stand. It's grace that establishes our calling. Paul did not earn his apostleship, and neither did the Philippians earn their standing in Christ. Their salvation was a reception and a taking hold of, a tasting, an eating, a participation in the grace of God. Verse 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Of Christ Jesus. If I had to choose one verse in the entire epistle which would summarize what I hope to see throughout this epistle, it's this verse that there is an affection for the Philippians which Christ Jesus himself has, and that affection has become Paul's affection. Paul expresses his love for them as a yearning of affection. If you have ever been in what I would rightly call love, the love that exists between a man and a woman as they are growing closer together, hopefully with the goal of marriage, hopefully in the context of pursuing marriage, you have experienced the yearning of affection. There is a type of affection in romantic love that just causes you to want to be with that person. It is a wonderful thing. It is the way that God made man and woman to exist in matrimony. And it is that sort of love that Paul is describing here, not romantic love, but brotherly love, that he yearns to be with them. He wants to be with them. You see, this is the love that Christ Jesus has for his people. Paul is not a fly-in, fly-out apostle who wants to just kind of remind, oh, hey, Philippians, I've got missionary needs. I need you to keep giving money. No, he, he says, I have a godly affection, desire for you. It's the affection of Christ Jesus. And the reason why I believe God gave this sort of love for the Philippians to Paul is that through his writings, we would see that this is the love of Jesus Christ for the sake of the church. Jesus Christ loves his bride with intense desire and compassion. Intense desire. Jesus, when he thinks about the church, the the, the community of saints throughout the ages, those for whom he died, he does not consider them with shame and scorn in his mind. He eagerly desires to be with his bride. And wants her to be beautified and glorified. And that's why we are given a vision through John's revelation of a perfect, beautiful bride coming down out of heaven. A wonderful, spotless city in which the Lamb is in the midst and doesn't leave. Not only that, Jesus Christ loves his saints and he calls them his brothers. In Hebrews 2.11, it says that he was not ashamed to call them his brothers because of what he's going to do in sanctifying them. This delivers us from so many so many terrible temptations to sin and to have such a low view of ourselves because of what we remember of our own sinfulness, especially before we come to Christ, before we begin to make steps in sanctification, and even indeed after we begin our walk with the Lord, we commit such terrible sins, such grievous and odious things that we ourselves are tempted to think that this is how God sees me. No, this is the affection of Jesus Christ for his people. He wants them to be pure. He wants them to be fully his. I was watching a sermon video a few months ago in which I was uh, absolutely uh, moved by compassion for the expression of what this man had said. I, I um, am a great admirer of many Christian pastors throughout the national scene. Uh, I've mentioned a few of them here before, John Piper, Douglas Wilson, things like that. They're wonderful aides, God has given the, the church wonderful aids and they should be learned from. And one of the men that I've begun to listen to his material over the last few years has been a man named Sinclair Ferguson. He is a fellow of Ligonier Ministries and uh, Andy Gerhart might might uh, have seen him at a conference or two. And Sinclair is, he's getting up there in age. He is uh, retired and he was giving a talk at the 2014 Desiring God Conference for Pastors in which he was just out in a hallway and he was describing his most important lessons from a lifetime of pastoral ministry. And I was listening to this teaching as I was driving down to Cincinnati and I was so moved by what he was saying, I actually missed an exit because I was just caught up in thinking about the implications of what he had said. And near the tail end of his 20 or so minute discussion, he began to explain what he considered to be the most important emotional lesson, not, not head knowledge, but practical affection in, uh, instruction or lesson that he had to learn in his pastoral ministry. And if you know who Sinclair Ferguson is, part of the joy of listening to him is that he is a Scot of Scots. And um, I can't do the voice for you today, but uh, if you ever do get a chance, it's well worth to listen to the man speak. He says, and I quote: "One of the best lessons, the the most important lesson from a lifetime of pastoring, that I learned to live the whole of my life, every moment, every day, conscious that I am not alone, conscious that I am an adopted child of the Creator." conscious that I am one for whom Jesus was not ashamed to die and to call brother. And conscious that that's true of all those who professed faith in Jesus Christ. And what struck me deeply the most was that I am one for whom Jesus Christ was not ashamed to die. And that's true of you. And so because of that, I can be transformed from my Apathy and lack of desire and lack of brotherly affection by meditating upon that's true for you as well. That for all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, you are one for whom Jesus Christ was not ashamed to die. And that he lovingly went to the cross, not despising you, even though paying the penalty of your sin. That is the sort of transforming love that is at the core and center of the gospel. So as he returns to his prayer here in verse 9, Uh, Verse uh, 9, 10, and 11, he encourages them once again with his heart for their goodness. He eagerly desires that they would be blessed. Verse 9, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Although the Philippians had shown their love for Paul before and their love for one another before, and even in a, in a perpetual way, he calls them to and is praying for their love to explode, to magnify, to be multiplied. He, he desires that their love would abound. It would, it would know no boundaries. It would continue to grow without impede, impeding. Paul's prayer demolishes the false doctrine of our age, therefore. This prayer we see not only is Paul expressing his heart, but he's expressing his love for the Philippians, which is no false love, but is a true love. Again, our day commends love or it it, it assumes love is the mutual acceptance of all people, lifestyles, behaviors, and a simple, easy toleration of anything whether or not it be damning, damaging to the person or damaging to others. Love expressed in our world today is the celebration of anything that the world treasures. However, what Paul is saying here that they would abound in love, he immediately ties it to with all knowledge, with knowledge and all discernment. Love cannot be true love unless it accords with truth. To love something that is contrary to God's will and God's ways is to be a hater of God. We know that those who love the world are at enmity with God. True love is not the toleration of anything that goes, but it is concerned with discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul says this in Ephesians 5.10, to have your senses trained, to be able to discern what is pleasing to God. So, for the Philippian Christians to approve what is excellent, that is, for their love to abound with knowledge and with discernment, they must not only grow in wisdom of what God wishes, what his will is, but also they must understand that that love and knowledge go together and they become behavior, that they approve what is excellent that they don't merely tolerate or, or have some sort of peripheral engagement with the excellent things of the Christian faith, but they approve, they eagerly desire and take to practice the things that are excellent. Here he describes the fruit of righteousness as a manifestation of faith. I wanna read it again, verse nine. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ how will they be demonstrated as pure and blameless because they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness the fruit of righteousness is not an invisible thing that happens in the heart but rather it it is the expression of righteousness worked out in life that is what the fruit of the spirit is every one of the fruits of the spirit love gentleness kindness notice they all determine or they describe the interactions between people you can't be gentle by yourself you can't be kind by yourself you you have to do that in relation to others and so this is what paul's saying he wants the love between the philippians for each other and their love for those outside their local church communities to abound and to be exploding and growing and taking new ground. This is the sort of thing that I have in mind when I'm thinking about ordinary time and, and what the Lord is doing in our church. Unless you take out a root completely, it will come back and it will grow everywhere. About this time in my life, I look out my backyard at, at this season in the year and I notice the morning glories which I have never been able to kill. They come back every year and they take more ground and they, they, they are now growing into my garage and around my garden beds because they are just continuing to be supplied by their root. And unless I take drastic action, that is the natural outworking of their continued existence. The, the morning glories are abounding and they must be stopped. Many of you like morning glories. I do too. They're just in the wrong place. And so, but this is the vision that Paul has for the Philippian church, that being rooted in Christ, their love should continue to grow and to take more ground. So those who are righteous by faith in Jesus Christ are transformed from death into new life and they bear the marks of that new life in Jesus Christ. They begin to behave and to relate to others according to that new life. It is not vanity. It is not fake religion. It is true undefiled religion and an expression of Christ's love. We see this in Paul's example. Paul ceased his hatred for Christians, being himself transformed by the love of Christ, into the sort of person who loved others. Likewise, Paul desired that the Philippian saints would continue to bear the fruits of faith and holiness. Paul's prayer for the Philippian church must absolutely be the same for us today. It is our desire that learning from Paul, we should pray and act in faith that we might live to the glory and praise of God. Let's close. Father, we thank you for Paul. We do thank you for your word. It is of infinite value. We ask that you would help us, God, that you would help me, that you would help us, that you would help us as individuals and as a people, that we would become so convinced of your love for us that as we quoted Ferguson, that that we are those for whom Christ was not ashamed to die and to call brothers that that would become not only what we think of ourselves as we renounce sin and turn towards your grace, but also that 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 love would work its way out to those around us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. We pray that through this epistle, as we examine it over the next few weeks, that you would work within us a genuine affection that we would be able to say with Paul, oh, how we hold you in our hearts how we yearn for you with the affection of Christ. Lord, we thank you for this great love. We pray that you would aid us in not only receiving your love, but transforming those around us by extending your love to them. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.